What is truth? Dr. Sayer, when he started us off this morning, already raised that question. It's a question that we actually find in the Gospel of John because Pilate asks that question to Jesus. What is truth? It's a question that all of us at one time or another struggle with. We seek the answer to that question, what is truth? The trouble with truth, though, is that not all truth works the same. And I want to actually just present to you quickly two different kinds of truth. Now, these aren't technical terms, but I'm going to define my own terms so that you can go down this journey with me as we're talking about the truth that is found in John. The first kind of truth would be a law truth. What is a law truth? It's a truth that does not require knowledge, understanding, or belief in order for it to be effective. Let let me give an example of, of a law truth. I don't understand anything about gravity. If you were to ask me to to write a paper or explain gravity, I really couldn't. My children, my, my daughter, knows nothing about gravity, and yet as she is learning to walk, she gravity affects her every day. Now, we could have a PhD, an astrophysicist, stand up here on the stage with me. We could both come to the edge of the platform, and on the count of three, we could jump. Now, he has way more understanding about the truth of gravity. And yet, if we both jumped, does his knowledge of gravity, his more information, is that going to affect how gravity affects him at all differently from me? No. We're both going to jump. We're both going to fall. We might twist an ankle because gravity is going to affect us both the same irregardless of our understanding of that truth. There's many truths like that. There's the truth of death. Death in humanity is not something that you need to understand. It's not something that you need to accept. It's not something that you need to believe in order for it to happen. You can do all of these things to try to keep death away, and yet the law of death is that it will happen. But then there's another kind of truth. We're going to call it transforming truth. Transforming truth is truth that only transforms once it is trusted. For the sake of illustration... Let me, let me explain this. Let's imagine and let's pretend that this is true. Let's pretend that somewhere near your home is buried millions and millions of dollars worth of gold. Okay? So in our story, in this illustration, pretend that it's true, that there is millions and millions of dollars worth of gold. If that's true, is that transforming your life? No. What's the problem? Well, the first problem is, if you don't know it's there, then it's not going to do anything for you. If you don't know about it, it won't transform anything for you. But then, again, in our illustration, let's imagine one day you're walking on the road, a stranger comes up to you and says, I have good news for you. At your home, at this place, is buried this treasure. Okay, you know about it, Is it transforming your life yet? No. Until you respond to that information, until you actually go home and dig it up and take possession of it, it means nothing for you. That's the truth that transforms. Transforming truth is one that requires a response in order for there to be transformation. The reality is that The truth must have a response. In the Gospel of John, John has been pointing us to a truth. He has tirelessly sought to help us answer one question that we've talked about week in and week out. Who 
is Jesus. John wants us all to know the answer to that question. Who is Jesus? Why is it so important to John for us to know the answer of that question? Because it's true. But the truth of who Jesus is, is a transforming truth. It requires a response. Now, let's not make this wrong and think that, oh, our response is changing something for Jesus. We need to know who Jesus is, imagining that, that Jesus is the king with no throne. And until we respond and until we place him on the throne, he just can't have his position. That's not the transformation that happens. Christ's position is secure. It's not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. Who Jesus is, is. That's what we've seen time and time again. He is the great I am. So if it's not changing Jesus, why does John want us to answer the question, who is Jesus? John wants us to know the answer of who Jesus is in order to trans transform the answer of who I am. The question behind the question of who is Jesus is who am I? Who am I? Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has told them, this is who you are without me. This is who you are in your sins, but this is who I am. In answering the question, who is Jesus, it changes who we are. This is what we're going to see today. This is our big idea. The truth of who Jesus is only transforms who we are once we trust in him. It's true who Jesus is. It's not up for debate. It is sure. But that truth does not transform everyone. It is not the law truth that it doesn't matter what you do with it, it's still going to happen. It's the transforming truth that based on your response to that truth, it can transform your life. So that's what we're going to see this morning. So here's the question again. What is true? Two weeks ago in the final, first part of John chapter 20, we encountered the transforming truth that was the greatest reversal in history. Not only was it the great reversal in Christ's story, it could also be the reversal in our story. What was that greatest reversal that we encountered? The resurrection. Jesus had already said, I am the resurrection. This resurrection reverses everything. Now Jesus is alive. John's unbelief became belief when he truly saw the empty tomb. Mary's sorrow turned to joy when she encountered the risen Lord. Because they trusted the truth, their lives were transformed. And at the end of our passage from two weeks ago, it said this, that Mary was told to go to the disciples and proclaim the truth, the truth that Christ is risen. So in verse 18, John 20, verse 18, it says this, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So now we come to the disciples. We know as the readers what is true. Jesus is alive. We've seen it transform different people's lives who have trusted that. What condition do we find the disciples in? Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And we're going to stop there. Notice the time that John is sure to include. If you look back at verse 1 of chapter 20, Mary goes to the tomb early on the first day, early on Sunday morning. This is the same day of the resurrection. 
But now it's evening. And John includes that details for, for two different reasons. There's a significance in knowing that. The first is the significance of how much time has passed. This isn't just a few minutes after Mary encountered Jesus, in which case, oh, well, maybe the disciples haven't heard yet. Maybe Mary didn't have the time yet to get to them. She's still with Jesus, and so they don't know. No, that's not what's happening. It's evening. Remember, when did it happen for Mary? Early, while it was still dark. But now, it's the end of the day. The disciples have already heard from Mary what she has proclaimed. I have seen the risen Lord. The other significance, though, is in how John uses that imagery of darkness and light. Remember, Mary goes to the tomb, and John is, is intentional in saying she went while it was still dark. Jesus is the light of the world, but the, the world does not know the light. It does not come to the light. It does not understand the light. And here we find the Jews, the, here we find the disciples. They're not celebrating. They're not rejoicing at the news Mary shared with them. They aren't praising God for the truth of the resurrection. They're not celebrating. They're cowering. John tells us they are in this room with all the doors being locked. Why? Because they're scared. As it starts to get dark again, as it's the evening of that day, they don't have the light. They're hiding in fear. And I want to just consider this fear because it can be easy for us to look at them and just roll our eyes and say, come on, Guys, like seriously, after everything Jesus has said, after all the times that he told you this was going to happen, are you really going to run and hide right now? But if I'm honest with myself, humanly speaking, I'd be in the same place if I hadn't already skipped town and run away out of fear earlier. Just think about what's going on for these disciples these disciples just watched the Jewish leaders manipulate the most powerful man in the country in their manipulation of Pilate. They forced Pilate to torture and humiliate not just some guy, not just some criminal, but one who is known in Israel, one who has followers, one who just a week earlier came into town and everyone was rejoicing and praising him. The crowds, the multitudes were there. And yet the Jewish leaders were able to manipulate Pilate to the point where he crucified him. If you're one of the disciples, you're thinking, man, if they did that to him, what are they going to do to us. Not only that, what have they just discovered from Mary? Okay, they might not believe that Jesus is alive, but they believe that the tomb is empty. Who do you think is going to get blamed for that? In fact, in the other Gospels, we know that the priests are saying, hey, let's say it was the disciples that stole his body. These guys are terrified and not without reason. They are truly facing a great adversary. So not, let's not look at them as a bunch of cowards. The threats and danger they were facing were real and significant. But what does their feel, fear reveal? This is the day of Christ's resurrection. Christ has been alive now for several hours. The truth of Christ's resurrection has been proclaimed by Mary to them. But it's getting dark, and the disciples are locked in fear because they have not trusted the truth of Christ's resurrection. The transformation has not happened for them, even though it's true. Jesus is alive. It doesn't matter. It's not where, well, no, they, they need to believe that he's alive in order for Jesus to truly become alive. It's a symbolic thing. No, it's true. He's alive, and yet their lives are not yet transformed. But that's all about to change. Because Christ is going to come and give them comfort. It says that they're locked in the room. 
And then it says this at the end of verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. They're in this locked room. And we're not exactly sure. It doesn't give us everything. It doesn't, we, we don't know if Jesus went through the door miraculously with his, his uh, new body or if, if he miraculously unlocked the door. We're not sure. But the fact is, they're all thinking that they're safe. No one can come in. And all of a sudden, Jesus is in their midst. In the other Gospels, we know that, that they're terrified. They think it's a ghost. And Jesus says, peace be with you. This is more than just, even though it uses the words that were common for greeting for the Jews, this is more than just a common greeting. It's both overwhelming comfort as well as a gentle rebuke. How is it that it is overwhelming comfort? If you know the condition of humanity that they are in darkness, that they are locked in fear, can there be any peace apart from Christ? Since the fall in Genesis 3, can there be any hope for peace without Christ? There can't. For Christ to come and say, peace be with you. He is the only one who can truly give them that peace. What did Jesus say earlier in John 14? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Can the world truly give peace? No. The world is still lost in darkness. The world is still locked in fear. The world can give no peace. Only Christ can give peace. And he is in their midst. And he gives them that comfort. Peace be with you. The peace that can only come through him. It's an astounding comfort. It's astounding that knowing that he has sent a message to them, that he has spent all of this time with them and calling them and saying, this is what's going to happen. Get ready. And they don't get it. He's crucified and they run away. They don't get it. He's buried. Mary comes. Mary sees Jesus. She goes. Jesus says, wait, don't cling to me. Go and tell my brothers. Mary goes and they still don't get it. Man, it would make sense for Jesus to come into the room and say, a curse be on you. But he doesn't. He says, peace be with you. It's an overwhelming comfort, but it's also a gentle rebuke because again, what did he say in John 14, 27? Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He told them, listen, because of my peace, do not be locked in fear. But now they have true peace. And where is their peace found? Is it found merely in his words? No, it's found in the truth of who he is. That's what John wants us to know, right? Who is Jesus? What does Jesus do for his disciples? He just doesn't say the word and disappear again. He says, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. The disciples see the scars and are comforted. Why does Jesus have those scars? He has those scars for us. He has those scars because he shouldered our shame. He has those scars because he paid for our sin. He has those scars because of his love 
for us. The identity of Jesus is found in the sacrifice he made for us. He bears the scars of his sacrifice and he shows them and he says, it's really me. What you saw just last Friday, what you saw with me hanging on the cross, with my hands pierced, with my feet pierced, with my side pierced, what you saw, it's me. And when they saw it, they were transformed. Why were they transformed? Was it not true before that he had done all those things? Were his scars not there? Had he not already come to life? What was it that transformed them? They trusted it. They came to the point where they believed the truth. And now from fear, they go to gladness. But like with Mary, Jesus does not let the disciples merely dwell in the celebration of his resurrection. He calls them to something. He reminds them of their purpose. He points them to what they are to do. Christ gives them a commission. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The whole purpose is not just to trust Jesus and be transformed so that we're no longer scared. The purpose is not so that we can now just, well, now I know where I'm going. Obviously, we want that comfort. But the comfort that we receive is only part of the transformation. The other transformation is now we have a purpose. Not only do we have peace, but we have a purpose. We are called to do something. And what is our purpose? It is to continue the work of Christ. Now this is, is, is something that is mind-boggling that we cannot even comprehend. It makes sense for Christ to do the work. He's perfect. He's God. The fact, though, that he would ask us to be part of the work as sinners is mind-boggling. But that's the part that we are to play in God's sovereign plan. God has ordained that we are to continue the ministry of Christ. This is what John 13 through 17 was all about. Jesus was preparing his disciples to live for him even when he was no longer with them. So Jesus comes to this commission again. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. Now don't make the, get this wrong. This does not mean that we are going to do everything that Jesus did. We are not going to be a sacrifice for the sins of others. We are not going to save others. But Jesus was sent and he responded in perfect obedience. Jesus was sent by the Father and he accepted his, his call and he fulfilled his call. He fulfilled his purpose according to the Father's plan. That's what we are to do. We are to do what the Father has called us to do. We are to follow the example of Christ. But is it possible for us to do that in our own strength? Are we capable of following the example of Christ in and of ourselves? By no means. If it's up to us, where are we going to be? Behind the door, locked in fear. When it was left up to the disciples, that's where they were. What do we need? We need power. Not our power. We need true power. And that's what Jesus gives. He capacitates them. And then when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. More than any of the other Gospels, John talks about the Holy Spirit. He has already promised the Holy Spirit to the disciples. He has even said, it is to your advantage for me to go. Because if I don't go, the helper won't come. If I don't come, go, you will not have in you the spirit that you need. That is the role of the spirit. 
And now he tells them, receive the Spirit. When does this come to fruition? Where Billy took us last week, Acts 2. Acts 2, the disciples are there and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. We need to understand that this is a magnificent promise that was never expected. In the Old Testament, God would give his spirit at times. In the building of his tabernacle, he gave his spirit for some to do incredible works. The spirit was on David. The spirit was on Saul. But there were times where the spirit was removed. But even in the beginning of the book of John, the, uh, uh, John the Baptist says, that hears that this is the one who is coming who will baptize in the Spirit. The Spirit that we receive from Christ is never removed from us. Because we are in Christ, when we place our trust in Him, the transformation that happens for us is not just the peace, it's not just the purpose, it's also the power. But not our power. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit because you can't do this in your own strength. And then Jesus goes on and gives them a charge that is difficult for us when we read this verse at first because this is what it says, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. When I read that, there's a little part of me that just gets this spot in my back. I'm like, ah, I don't love it. Uh, can we, can we say that in a different way? It just seems like we're giving a lot of authority to Christians, and, and I'm really not comfortable with this because are we now the ones that grant salvation to people? Because the context here is in the proclamation of the gospel, What we are sent to do as we are sent to follow the model of Christ is to proclaim the good news. So how do we make this work? How does this make sense? Now, now one of the things we need to always remember is you have to take Scripture in context. And you also need Scripture to interpret Scripture. We don't just look at this verse and say, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. All right then, let's do this. One of the problems when we talked last week a little bit about the Reformation was a, a misinterpretation of this verse. Of people thinking, listen, if you give me X amount of money, I'll let you be forgiven. If you don't, I'm gonna withhold it. That's not what's happening here. Remember, what has been given, the comfort, is peace. That peace is when we trust in Jesus. The call, the commission, is again what we are given to proclaim. Again, it's because we trust in Jesus. The power we receive of the Holy Spirit is because we trust in Jesus. This charge happens through our trust in Jesus. It is according to the comfort. It is according to our call. And it is according to the Holy Spirit. So there's two sides of this. It's a twofold way in which we do this. The first way that we accomplish verse 23 is in the proclamation of the gospel. We are to go and proclaim forgiveness of sins. Because we have been forgiven, because we have been transformed, we are to proclaim the truth. We are to go to the world and tell them, you are dead in your sins. But Christ is the truth that can save you. What would happen if we refused to proclaim that truth? We would be withholding forgiveness of sins. There is no other forgiveness of sins not found in Christ. And how did Christ choose, how did the Father choose for his message to go forward? Us. He commissioned us. Go, therefore. This is our call. 
for us to receive that call. And remember, the disciples have already received this call earlier. Jesus prayed it in chapter 17. But where are they when Jesus is saying this to them? In a locked room. What are they withholding from others? Forgiveness. For us to receive the light and then put a bowl over it so no one can see it, we are withholding the light that forgives. So part of this, what, what we're seeing here, is that they are meant to go and proclaim the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness that is only found in trusting the truth. The other element, though, in this is recognition. Again, we, we can sometimes feel uncomfortable with this, but God has given an authority to his people, the church. The church is called to recognize and affirm others' salvation. Don't get that wrong in thinking that the church then gives salvation. That's not what happens. But God has given authority to the church to recognize that. Both in Matthew 16 and 18, Jesus talks about that. And I think the part of that that we, we, we don't like is we're thinking, wow, that's way too much authority for the church because, because you're doing that. But here's the flip side of that that we often don't consider. In saying, no, we should not give that much authority to the church, what you're doing is you're giving all of the authority to the individual. Because you're saying only the individual has the ability to say if they're truly saved. No. I'd rather trust in the church to recognize this. Can the church get this wrong? They can but this responsibility that we have to go and say, no, we're not going to baptize you. We're not going to bring this, you into this because you're not truly forgiven. And we don't want you to think that you're forgiven and go to hell. That would be another way of withholding forgiveness. If we come across someone who is wrong in their belief to th and think that they're saved and we say nothing to them, do they have forgiveness? No. What are we withholding from them? Forgiveness. The application, the, the fulfillment of all of this is found in, John, in Acts 2. Peter receives the Holy Spirit. Peter proclaims the truth of the gospel. Peter recognizes the, the, the response in baptizing. He tells them, repent and be baptized. This is what Jesus says in John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Salvation is only through Jesus, but it must be believed. It must be proclaimed. Truth only transforms when it is trust, trusted. How often do we tr stop trusting the truth of who Jesus is? I'm not saying that in the sense that it's possible to stop trusting in Jesus and lose your salvation after you've placed your trust in him. No, our salvation is secure. But on a practical level, how often have we heard the promises of God and yet it starts to grow darker the world seems so much greater and we run to our room and lock the door. How often do we forget the comfort that Christ provides us? How often do we neglect the commission that he has given us? How often do we abandon the, Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit? We can also be locked in fear even after we have trusted. We must have our trust continually be renewed in Christ so that transformation can continue. 2 Timothy 1.6 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Brothers and sisters, we have been commissioned. We cannot stay locked in this room for fear of how others will respond. We must boldly go. And the key that unlocks the door is trust in the truth of who Jesus is. 
If we trust the truth of Jesus, that key unlocks the door to our fear. It lets us out and there is gladness. We then go to Thomas in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. There's a misnomer, I think, uh, on, when it comes to Thomas that we all call Thomas Doubting Thomas. And I think it's a little unfair and it actually confuses us of what's happening here because the fact is, Thomas didn't doubt any more than the other disciples. What did they say to him? We have seen the Lord. Was he there when they, that happened? No. What did Mary tell the disciples? I have seen the Lord. But they weren't there. Did they believe Mary? No. So they were all doubting disciples. They had just as much information as Thomas has now. And yet only Thomas gets this, this monochrom of like, oh, we, you are the doubting Thomas. No, they were all doubting. But Thomas's condition is actually found in the strength of Thomas's rejection. Unless I see, unless I place my finger, my hand, I will never believe. The strength of that I will never believe is incredibly emphatic. It's a double negative in Greek. No, never. What Thomas is showing us is an arrogance in rebellion. Thomas's condition and the, the conditions that he gives is it's all based on himself. I need this. I need more. I will never respond unless. What do we call it? If, one of, if my kids come up and say to me, unless, I will never. What are they putting on me? An ultimatum. This is the only way we are moving forward. What position is my child taking when they put an ultimatum on me? Authority. They're placing themselves over me. That's what Thomas is doing. He's saying, look, it's not good enough. I don't care what happens. I don't care what God does. Unless he gives me and shows me this, I will never respond. We're not different, are we? How often do we place ultimatums on God instead of walking by faith? How often do we say, man, I, I, I wish I had more information, but it is enough. I know what I know about God, and it is enough to guide me through this time where I have not yet seen. Thomas had enough information. It was already true. It had been revealed, and yet Thomas refused. But then we see Christ's care when Thomas is with Jesus. It says eight days later, and for, for the Jewish calendar, that would be the next Sunday. The next Sunday. So Thomas has had all of this time where he is in this place of darkness. Again, how would we imagine Jesus responding? Thomas, I've given you everything. I've done all of these things. All of these people sent to you so that you may believe and you have refused. You have rebelled against me. You have placed an ultimatum on me. You have placed yourself above me. I will leave you, leave you to your own devices, but that is not what Christ does. Christ cares for Thomas. Although the doors were locked, which is an interesting side thing of how much transformation is still happening for the disciples, they're still on that journey. They're still behind locked doors, but they're, they're getting there. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Again, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. How much love does Christ have for Thomas that even in Thomas's rebellion, he gives Thomas what Thomas needs. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ does for all of us. There's no boasting in our salvation where I'm like, huh, I needed way less to be saved than that guy. 
No, every single one of us needed the same thing. Christ to save us. The Father to call us. The Spirit to regenerate us. This is not for our boasting. It is all the work of God. All of it is the love of God that he is demonstrating to us. And, John, and, and, and Jesus calls Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Why? Because you will never be transformed in your disbelief. The only way to be transformed is in belief. And then we come to the great confession. In response to Christ's revelation, Thomas gives us one of the greatest Christological confessions in all of Scripture. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. This circles us back all the way to the very beginning of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is what John has been wanting us to see. This is the journey that Jesus has taken his disciples on. You need to see who I am so it can be transformed who you are. And Thomas has seen it. My Lord, you who are ruler over everything, I belong to you. You are my Lord, my master. And you are my God. Thomas sees the truth. And because he trusts the truth, he is completely and totally transformed. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? And we might feel like, man, it must have been so easy for them. They got to see this. It's just as much a miracle for their salvation as it is a miracle for our salvation. And this is the beauty of Christ's consideration. He considers us in this moment. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We have not been forgotten. There is a blessing for us. Christ has revealed himself to us through his word. We can believe because we have been given enough we can believe because there is a family tree that we can trace all the way back to those first disciples who went out and obeyed their call and proclaimed the truth. And then those people believed. And then the other people believed. And that continued and continued until we have received the truth. That's the purpose of this whole book. No, we weren't there. We haven't seen the way Thomas saw. And yet we have been given the word of God. So what is our response to the truth? Are we giving ultimatums? Are we arrogantly rejecting the truth because we believe we don't have enough? Do not disbelieve, but believe. Lay your doubts aside. Respond like Thomas, my Lord and my God. But for those of us who have already done that, how often do we claim Jesus is our Lord and our God and yet refuse to submit to him? We say he's our Lord and our God. And yet we give ultimatums. We say, God, unless you do this, I will never. That is not our position. Our position is like Thomas, my Lord and my God. And this is where John wants to take us. Jesus and me. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These things are written because they are true. This is who Jesus is is. It's not up for discussion. It's not up for debate. This is Jesus, the great I am, the son of God. And he can transform you. He can give you life in his name. But you must believe. This is the truth. It's the truth that transforms. We can have life 
the law that can, this is the law that can be reversed. Death to life, condemned to saved, enemy to friend. The truth, though, only transforms when it is trusted. The truth of who Jesus is only transforms who we are once we trust in him. The Gospel of John, truly, this is the conclusion of the Gospel of John. We do have another chapter. Okay, we are going to do that other chapter. It is part of the Bible. But John 21 really functions as an epilogue. Okay, if you watch your favorite movie, and there's this thing that movies now do where the movie ends, there's all the credits, and then there's an additional scene at the end that offers a little bit more information. That's kind of what we have here. This is the end. This is why I wrote it. We have another scene that's going to offer a little bit more, and there's much to learn and glean from there, but this is where John wants us to reach. It's time to respond. What is truth? If you are here and have not yet believed, I want to tell you of a truth that is law. It's the law of your condition. The law of the condition of humanity is that we are dead in our sins. We are condemned. It doesn't matter if you know that. It doesn't matter if you believe it. It doesn't matter if you accept it. It's the law. It's true. You are dead in your sins. But there is a greater transforming truth. There is a greater truth that is so powerful it can transform the truth that is law. There is a truth found in Jesus that because of what Jesus did, when we trust in him, the law of our condition is changed. No longer condemned, but saved. No longer dead, but alive. No longer lost, but found. If you're here and you're looking for the truth, the truth of who Jesus is only transforms who we are once we trust in him. Do not leave without having your truth transformed. If you're starving for truth and looking for satisfaction, Jesus is the bread of life who truly satisfies if you are blind in the dark and can't find your way, Jesus is the light of the world who gives sight to the blind. If you are separated from God's blessing, banished because of your sin, Jesus is the door of the sheep who grants access to God's provision and protection. If you are lost with no protection from the wolves, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life to save and gather his sheep. If you are scared as you live under the reign of death, Jesus is the resurrection and the life that those who believe in him never die. If you are wandering in the lies of this world, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life who has revealed himself to us. If you are withering and wasting away as you are cut off from the source of all power and life, Jesus is the true vine who through him provides power to produce good fruit. If you are condemned and dead in your trespasses and sins, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that whoever believes in him would have life in his name. It's true. Do you trust it? But there are also many of us here who have already trusted that truth. The greatest transformation has already happened. We are saved. But there is more that that truth should be accomplishing. It should be making us sanctified. It should be making us holy. Are we locked in fear and not obeying? We have comfort. Do not give yourself to fear. We have been commissioned. Do not lock yourself in darkness. We have been capacitated by the Spirit. Do not live through your own power. We have been charged. Do not withhold the forgiveness of sins by refusing to proclaim, nor by wrongly giving assurance with no consideration of fruit. These things will not happen if we are not living true to our confession. Jesus Christ is our Lord and our God. We do not place ultimatums on him. We submit to him.
This has been a journey for us through the Gospel of John for over a year. And all of it has been leading to a point of response. And I want to give us an opportunity to respond. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, you need to come to him and say, my Lord and my God. Repent, turn away from what you have thought was your salvation. It is only in Christ. He is the truth. But I think for many of us also, there is an element in responding of God is placing on us. There is a call for us. We have a purpose. It's not just to have eternal life in the sense of never dying. No, the life that he gives is now truly living. We now can accomplish the purposes that he has given us. So here's what I'm going to ask for those who want to. Because I would think that for us to reach the end of this journey... What a tragedy it would be to spend so much time learning of the truth only to not have it transform. How do we respond to the truth that Thomas proclaims? My Lord and my God. What is the response between before someone who is our Lord and our God? It's to kneel. It's to come before him and say, God, This is all yours. God, I I want to respond to you. I don't want to put ultimatums on you. I don't want to do things according to my plans. I don't want to be locked in fear. God, I want to follow your call. I want to ask us all to just bow our heads. I can't make your life transformed. No one here has the power to transform your life other than Christ. The only way that your life can be transformed is by placing your faith in Jesus. And by no means is this expected of everyone, but what I would ask is that as you are praying and you are coming face to face with the truth of who Jesus is, have you trusted that? Maybe you've placed your faith in it and you've trusted it once, but that trust has been waning. What is the response that you would have now of how to demonstrate the trust you have in Jesus? And if you would, I would just invite you to just even physically demonstrate that, not while anyone else is watching, it is just you. My eyes are closed as well. Would you kneel before our Lord and our God? Would you kneel before him right at your seat And say, God, whatever it is that you would call me to, however you would transform me, I am trusting the truth. I'm going to give you a few minutes to do that between you and God.